Well, good morning, church. If you have your Bibles, open up to uh, Revelation chapter 3 as we continue our series. And just a couple uh, in-house notes just as we're uh, getting started here. Um, Rich failed to mention that that was, obviously, most of you probably figured it out. The video was from Rod Ragsdale um, there in Cote d'Ivoire. And, um, you know, several years back, I was privileged to be part of a team that went to Cote d'Ivoire and and uh, put a roof on the church. I was actually part of the single, single team that went and taught in a seminary. But some of our guys climbed up on the roof. I think uh, Dale Fishback and Larry, you're, you're up on the roof, I think, Larry, and uh, Bob Tapper, maybe Mike, a few guys, and put one of those roofs on. And uh, apparently somebody gave Rod a uh, drone because he was having a lot of fun with it, it seems like. Uh, in in Corte d'Ivoire, when you, when you put the roof on, it's just a, a different level of recognition of the church. That church has probably been there for years, um, but it's, it has a different level of recognition by the government and the people there when the roof goes on, and so it's a really big deal, and there's several churches in Rod's Association of Churches that have a building and no roof. Uh, it's the heart, one of the hardest parts, and so it's just kind of fun to see. Just a little side note from me being there. I don't know if you noticed all the holes in the building. Did any of you guys see that? And it's a, that really drove me crazy when I was there because all, so many of the buildings were there, and at least one of the reasons, I don't think it's the only reason, but you can't go to Home Depot and rent scaffolding. And so what they do is they knock a hole in the cinder block on both sides and put a, a you know, flat piece of board there, and that becomes your, your scaffolding going up the side of the building. And then you've got to have somewhere to put your bucket with all your mortar in it, so you just knock another hole in there, put a stick in there, and hang it up there. And so they apparently have no problem putting holes in their building. Um, but uh, that was part of it. Also, want to just take a moment, and before I jump into the word, too, just to uh, um, say thank you uh, to you as a church and just the way that you responded. Uh, last Sunday, we had a, a visitor, uh, a gal created in God's image, who was really struggling, and uh, many of you reached out to her. And because of the involvement in some, we were able to get her medical care um, and to the hospital. Uh, one of our deaconesses drove her all the way to Gresham to get into a home. Um, Lori has since uh, got her car at uh, her house. It was just a lot of people helping, and she's still in care, and that's because many of you stepped up and, and reacted, and it was, it was difficult and challenging at times, um, but you guys did a good job, and I'm just really proud of you for doing that, so thank you. All right, Revelation chapter 3. Um, wake up! That... Uh, is going to be used twice in this. Wake up. When the preacher says, wake up, what is he saying? <laughs> um, saying, pay attention. Uh, get engaged. Um, when you're playing Little League, Mike, right? And the coach says out to the right fielder, it's all the right, right, always the right fielder. Wake up. So he said, get in the game. Um, you're not fully participating. Um, Maybe you're falling asleep. Um, one church, I, I had a guy who was, was really sh showed me this. I was his pastor. I couldn't believe it. And he showed me his pew and why he picked his pew. And the reason why he picked his pew was that one of the beams came right behind his pew. It was a headrest. He said, yeah, yeah, I picked this one. It has a headrest. I'm like, Great. Um, feels good. So wake up uh, is what he's saying uh, to the church today. So Revelation chapter 3, let's look at the church of Sardis. If you remember, the first two churches 
uh, had some similarities, or excuse me, the first and seventh church, we look at this chart, uh, they were probably the, most, the biggest, most active churches, but they were missing love. Churches two and six were the churches being the most persecuted, but Jesus doesn't have anything negative to say about them. And then the three middle churches, they are the ones that are the most compromised. And remember, we saw a pattern. They were ignoring the problem. They were participating in the problem. And then Sardis is declared dead. So we can kind of see this, this pattern. So chapter 3, verse 1, And the angel, to the angel of the church of Sardis write, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not, what? Wake up! I will come like a thief. And you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments. And they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. To the ones who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments. And I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. As we've been looking at, we have these, uh, these introductions to these churches, and there's two things that have stood out to me as I've been studying through this. The first is that, and we've talked about this extensively, is that John borrows from the description he gave of Jesus in chapter 1. And he pulls part of that into each of those churches, and it gives us a clue to what the solution to the issue in the church is. The second thing is I've been studying these churches. It's amazing how much John pulls on the city's uh, characteristics, history, or practices that he pulls into what he is saying. In other words, he's using a little of the town history to get their attention and say, hey, look, this is, this is the, the city in which you live. So keeping those things in mind, let's look at this introduction. First, a little bit about the city. Um, its industries were red dye and wool, um, which I think plays into this description of your garments being white. It had a very large Jewish population, probably one of the largest of the cities that we've looked at, which is interesting considering this is Asia Minor, okay, very Gentile area. Uh, the um, archaeology of the area, there's kind of a little schematic here, of what the, the main bathhouse in Sardis, okay, this was where they, the gymnasium where they went, and this was a, the, the bathhouse there is, I mean, it, there was, a lot of people went there, and there was a lot of immorality that went on there. And the Jewish synagogue was attached to the bathhouse. It was just right, right alongside of it. In fact, um, there, there it is right there, the Palestina, that's the bathhouse there. Uh, this is some of the uh, pictures of some of the remains there. Um, beautiful tile work. Uh, and there is a, you can kind of see this, what we would say like an altar or something. And archaeologists are a little confused by this. Uh, because the Jewish uh, synagogue wouldn't have this there. It's not a part of their normal 
uh, function. And you can't see it from here, but the, on the sides of them are the Roman eagle. And so you kind of go, whoa, what's going on there? Why is that in this synagogue? And so there's some question about that. Of course, everybody has their own opinion why. But you can see uh, a Roman artifact in a Jewish synagogue there, which raised some questions. Interesting enough, I don't have pictures of this, um, but the Christian church in Sardis, um, it was built uh, outside of the city in the ruins of one of the gods of the temple, one of the temple gods. And the new temple was built right next to it. So the Christian church was also right next to the flagrant idolatry of the time. In fact, uh, Ray Vanderland said in order for the Christians to get into the church, they had to walk through the pillars of the, the idol worshiping that was going on there. And so both the Jewish and the Christian church are either, Ray Vanderland brings up the point, either they're going, hey, we're going to be right in the city and we're going to be light in, a, in the darkest place. We're going to get right in there. Or they're compromised. We don't, we don't really have the answer to that. We can't go back and, and ask, but there's something going on there. Um, the town was known uh, for its strength. Now, you see this uh, hillside. The town of Sardis now is, would be on this plain here. Beautiful, beautiful uh, crops, just very fertile ground. But it used to be, and you can still kind of see some of the ruins up there, that the city center was on the top of this hill. Now, you know anything about battle, if you're on top of the hill, it's pretty hard to get to you there. And so they were known for being, you know, almost undefeatable. Almost, because why? Yeah, they were defeated. Um, and what, what happened is that uh, one time the, the city was being sieged, and this is a, a picture, a, a re, redoing of it, somebody did, and one of the guys was standing, uh, that was looking up at this, one of the, the soldiers looked up and and one of the guys on the, on the top of the garrison there dropped his helmet. And he didn't see anybody looking and seeing him, so he threw a rope over and climbed down and got his helmet. Climbed back up. And the soldier went back to his general and said, I got an idea. Sure enough, they climbed up the side of this, this mountain that they weren't really guarding because it was the side of a mountain, and they defeated them. Now, my grandfather had a saying when I was growing up. Maybe some of you have heard this. He used to say, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. It happened twice in Sardis. Where it was defeated because somebody crawled up the same area that they had used. And so for Sardis, their greatest strength turned out to be their greatest weakness. Hold on to that. Uh, there was also, a, a, from the writings and the inscriptions and all the stuff, they had a huge fascination with death and life, life and death, a lot of uh, imagery about that. And so we have this inscription in Scripture, and he refers back to the seven spirits of God, um, which, if you remember, we said in chapter 1, referred to the Holy Spirit. And it, it's really complex coming, coming to that uh, conclusion. There's a reference in Isaiah it's the idea of the Spirit of God hovering. It's the idea of God seeing everything and His Spirit being active. Um, it, it bothered me a little bit. I, we said it in chapter 1, and, and just going back in the study, I'm like, I went back through it again. I'm like, yeah, I'm still convinced that that represents the Holy Spirit. So 
Um, you can go study it for yourself, but that's where I'm at. Um, and then the seven stars, we're told, uh, it, uh, represents the angels of these churches. So remember, he's pulling all this information from chapter 1. And let's just go back to the introduction just for a second. Flip back a page in your Bibles, chapter 1, verse 4. Here's the introduction to these seven letters, one, seven churches. John to the seven churches that are in Asia. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the king of earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. As we we read this story, this, this letter here, and we have a reference to, it seems, people in the church who have soiled their garments, is the image, and those who have not. And you know, we have a tendency in Western worlds to see things very black and white. You're either Republican or you're Democrat. You're either this or that. It's, we, just, we, have, we can only see things in two sides for some reason. And the Bible doesn't look at things that way. It's much more complex here. And I was reading in Jude this morning, so turn one more page back. I'm just kind of taking a little bit of time in this introduction. Uh, Jude is writing, uh, those of you who've been around a long time, remember I started with this book, and um, it's, it's right here towards the end. It's speaking to these same churches in a, in a sense. To those who are called, verse 1, beloved in God. So he's writing to believers. But then in verse 17 he says this, but you, who? These beloved of God. But you must remember, beloved, okay, there's that term again, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, these beloved groups, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is those who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit. But you, behold, beloved, building yourselves up in the most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads us to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt, and save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garments stained by the flesh. And what we see is there's actually a whole bunch of different people in this church. There are those who are beloved of God, and they're showing mercy to other people who are beloved by God but are struggling. They're having doubt. They're dabbling in some stuff that they shouldn't be dabbling in. And then there's also scoffers in the church. These are the ones that are causing divisions in the church. And then there's other people who are the ones that we're supposed to snatch from the fire. See, there's this whole group of people that are in the church, which makes it really complex. And so it's not just there's... White hats and black hats in the church, which was that easy. We, we love to put people in groups. Well, those people are in that group because they do this. Or those people are in that group because they don't vote the way that I do. Or those people are in that group because they're of a different age. No, there's just a group of people that are loved by God. Some who are strengthening others. Some who need to be strengthened. There are people in the church that are causing division because they're devoid of the Spirit. And there are people in the church that need to be snatched from the fires of hell. 
And so we're reminded that He loves us. And He's freed us from our sins by the blood. And He's made us a kingdom of priests. He didn't just save us and say, all right, sit and wait it out. No, now you have a job. You have a role to play. And so that's what's addressed here in chapter 3. What are the strengths? He says, I know your works. Repeated phrase in these churches. God is walking amongst His churches. He knows His people. He knows His churches. He knows the culture in which they live. And He says, I know your works. Now, depending on your works, that could be good news or bad news. You know, um, if you come home as a kid and you've done something wrong, and maybe your mom says, where have you been? Your heart might start pounding a little bit. If your mom says, I know where you've been, your heart pops a little bit faster. And then in your mind, you're like going, what does she know and how much information do I need to give up, Right? Some of you are like, no, that was never me. So Jesus says, I know your works, but they're incomplete. Now look, I know that we are saved by grace, through faith, not by our works. does not mean that works are not necessary, that they're not important. So please hear here, what Jesus is saying is that there are works that are complete, and there are works that are incomplete. He says, you have a reputation for being alive. Of all the things that Jesus says of this church, I have to say that this is the, this is the, this is the biggest, this is the most complimented. Hey, you've got a great reputation. You have a reputation for being alive. But you're dead. And so as I looked at this, guess what? Their greatest strength is their biggest weakness. Their greatest strength, their reputation, they're living on it, they're gliding on it, it's their biggest weakness. What other strengths are mentioned in the church of Sardis? None. It's not a stellar resume. So what are the weaknesses? Again, I would say their greatest strength is their their greatest weakness. You know what? That's true for most of us. If you're a get-it-done type of first person, you know, you tend to run over people sometimes. If you show great amount of mercy, sometimes you have a tendency to enable people. If you don't have a problem dealing with conflict, you tend to find a lot more conflict. Your greatest strength is often your greatest weakness. It's not a big surprise. So what is the issue here in Sardis? Um, You know, we don't know exactly for sure, but we can make some, uh, some educated guesses. They are definitely overly confident, right? You have a great reputation. Yeah, we know. Well aware of our reputation. Let me tell you what we used to do. Dr. Downs was preaching uh, last week. 
you know, pastors' minds go, go to different places. And I, I was just reminded when he was talking about Peter's confession. Who do you say I am? You're the Christ. You're the Messiah. Son of the living God. And Jesus turns to him and says, good job. But you didn't come up with this on your own. Really? Because Jesus and Peter had been together for almost three years at this point in time. Peter was under one of the greatest, the greatest teacher of all time. The greatest role model of all time. He was, Peter was steeped in the Old Testament. It was like he had everything going for him. He gets the right answer. And Jesus says, you didn't get this on your own. God told you this. It just hit me. If that's true of Peter, how much more is it true of me? I didn't get there on my own. And first of all, it can be kind of humbling, right? I needed help. But then it's also really encouraging that God loved us so much to call us in. And so, I think it's a a really big mistake to get overly confident in who we are in Christ. Because whoever you are in Christ, you didn't get there on your own. Second, it seems to me that they're living on past success. You have a reputation of being alive, but you're dead. Now, there's another one here uh, that seems uh, very probable as well. Look, and, and it could be, obviously, a combination of all of these, but look at uh, verse 5. It says, the one, to the one who conquers, the one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, And I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before my angels. Sounds very much kind of like um, that they may be afraid to confess his name. And I I think here that that Jesus, the word of God here, is is kind of reminding us of Matthew 10.32 Uh, that says, so everyone who acknowledged me before man, I will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. So if Jesus says, hey, I will acknowledge you, those of you who have not blotted out, you know, stained your garments, I will acknowledge you before God, he says that here. Well, what's what's the prelude to that? That they have confessed his name before people. And so it seems very likely that they were becoming afraid of speaking in the name of Jesus. Not, certainly not in church, right? We all like to talk about Jesus on Sunday. But what about the rest of the week? What about your neighbors? What about maybe some of your kids who have gone astray? So I think these are really good reminders. As I was reading about this church in Sardis that is dead... Um, I was reminded of a book some of the elders read many, a few, many years ago, I don't remember how many years ago, uh, by Tom Rayner about the autopsy of a deceased church. And really short read, I've got a couple copies if somebody wants one, but um, the idea was they just looked at churches that closed their doors and he said, here's some things that the churches that closed their doors had in common. They're not on your notes, I'm just going to go through them real fast, I'm not uh, pointing anything out, 
about our situation. I'm just saying, look, these are things that we should probably be aware of. He said slow erosion. That is that they were slowly and steadily in decline. Uh, Second, the past is their hero, right? The reputation they had before. Uh, The church refused to look like the community. Uh, The budget moved inwardly, which just means that they were spending more money on themselves, less on people outside the church. The Great Commission became the Great Omission. They were a preference-driven church. The pastoral tenures begin to decrease. The churches rarely prayed together. The church had no clear purpose. And the church was obsessed with their facilities. In fact, the book had kind of reference to rooms that have almost set up like museums from the past. So what do we do? We have a church it has a reputation for being alive, but it's dead. What is the call? What, is, what, are we, what are we called to do here in chapter 3? There's five verbs, and, and verbs are important. They're really pointing to the action. There's five of them here. So here's the five things that Jesus is calling the church and us uh, to do. The first is, you should know it by now, wake up! It could be transformed. Translated, be watchful or show yourself to be watchful, which makes sense, right? It's the idea of being in the game, paying attention, being uh, participating. Uh, One commentator said it speaks to the danger of believers reducing their full commitment to God through Christ and allowing themselves to be seized by the things of lesser value. In other words, they become engrossed in the culture in which they live and they're content with it. Uh, when I was in seminary, uh, one of the professors there, Gary Bashirs, had an illustration about how God calls us. And, you know, historically the church has argued over, uh, you know, do we have free will to follow Jesus or does God do it? And I, I don't want to get into all that. But he had this really great illustration, um, which he's changed the name of now. But when I was in seminary, it was called the warm cookie approach. So really appealed to me. And so he had an illustration of you've got a bunch of little kids, five or six kids, and they're outside playing in the mud puddle, and they're filthy. And mom is inside, and she's baking some cookies. And the smell of that cookie, those cookies begin to loft outside. One of the boys smells the cookies and goes, oh. He gets up and goes to the door. Mom cleans them up, brings them inside, gives them a cookie. Then mom comes to the door and says, i got cookies in here. And a couple of the boys get up, and they go to the door. Mom cleans them up, puts them in the house, gives them a cookie. Then mom comes out, grabs one of the kids out of the mud puddle, and said, get in the house, and cleans them up, and gives them a cookie. He said, that's like the Apostle Paul. Okay? Light from heaven, what are you doing, Paul? But there's still one or two kids in the mud puddle. They haven't got up. They all smelt it. They all heard the call. The same is true with preaching of God's word. How we respond as a church. Look, we can read this and go, it's not me, it's not me, it's not me, it's them, it's not me. But the call still to the church has been consistent. It's our word that none of us like. Repent. So first he says, wake up. 
Second, he says, strengthen what remains. So I, I had to ask myself, I said, wasn't, wasn't a very good letter of recommendation here to Sardis, so what remains? What, what is it that they're supposed to strengthen? I said, a few things here. The gospel, uh, it says here, um, if, uh, remember then what you received and heard. He's clearly speaking about the gospel here. So there's, there's one thing that you can, you can strengthen. I mean, definitely the witness. I mean, if Jesus is going to confess you before his Father, saying that you're confessing him before people, that's probably something you should strengthen. But the one thing he says here is that you have some who have not soiled their garments. There's a group of people that he says they're pure. They've been washed by the blood of the Lamb. And so many times when we want to make changes in our life, we like to start with the weaknesses. What are your weaknesses? Okay, you got to work harder. Dave, you got to work harder doing this, 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 and this. I've been going through a lot of things about my own spiritual gifting and strengths and different things like that. And, and one of the things people have been saying that have been coaching me has been saying, Dave, you need, you need to work more on your strengths. Yeah, but shouldn't I work on my weaknesses? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where are you going to get the greatest success, right? So start with where you, you've got strengths, which is this, this group of people. Third verb, Remember increasingly hard for some of us, right? Remember. And he says specifically, remember what you received, that is the gospel. And I would argue that if you're really going to get back to what it means to be a church, it starts with the gospel. We were lost. We rebelled against God and His definition of good there was nothing that we could do to save ourselves God sent a redeemer and he called us he took our place he died for us he empowers us with the spirit and with his word and he changes us and we become the church the hands and feet of Jesus the priesthood of believers we need to get back to that. And so he says, remember what you received and heard. I'm like, okay, if we're, what's the difference of receiving something and hearing? Did they get it in writing and then later get a verbal follow-up? What are you saying? In this culture, and I've said this before in this, I just want to remind you, to hear means to receive it and do it. Okay? It means that they responded, that they were doing it. So just remember when you were doing it. Fourth verb. Keep it. Let me ask you a question. Are you keeping what you received? Are you continuing on in, in that tradition? Are you hearing it? Or are you just doing the, the, the church thing, small c? You know, you can give your money. 
You can give your time. But is God still getting your heart? Your life? Are you really keeping it? Or are you keeping a tradition? And finally, the last verb here, and you should know it by now. Repent. It means turn and do something different. Change. We get to the reward. Clothed in white garments. Okay, remember there was a wool uh, community here in Sardis and red dye. And he says, those, those who keep it, those who haven't soiled their garments, they'll be clothed in white garments. And it, it references purity. Not purity that you obtain on your own, but a purity you receive from Jesus Christ. His righteousness imputed in you. Second, he says, I'll never blot your name out. Now, I don't know about you, but that one kind of grabs a hold of you because we read that and we say, well, if he's saying he'll never blot it out, it means sometimes he does. That's just our logic. It doesn't have to mean that. I'm not going to blot your name out because your name is written in the, in the book of life and it can't be blotted out. I think this is a security. And I know some, you know, older we get, we kind of start, you know, realizing we're going to stand before Jesus and we go, man, have I done enough? Look, have you placed your faith in Jesus Christ? Now, it might be a second good question to ask yourself, are you seeing the work of the Spirit in you? Are you changing? Are you growing? Because that's what Christians do. But there's a, a point of security here. And then I think this is beautiful. Jesus confesses his name before the Father. So again, this idea from uh, Matthew, right? If you confess my name, I will confess your name. And, and just, you know, you're coming to the gates. You've lived your life. Nothing you can do at this point. And Jesus looks over and says, he's with me. She's with me. That's the only ticket. Man, I'm Jesus, Dad, they're with me. Oh, that is powerful when you think about it. And finally, he repeats again, remember, listen. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Notice it's plural there. He's not saying, look, this isn't just to start us. This is to the churches. Some application and action. Let's not be overly confident, but let's humbly submit ourselves to God. Let's not rest on our reputation. Let's not rest on our reputation. The funny thing about a reputation, 
if you have to tell me about the reputation, it's not a reputation. If you need to tell me what the church did 20 years ago, it doesn't matter anymore. Let's not be afraid to confess Jesus. All of us, we, we need to be bolder in our testimonies. Right? We, I, I could preach that one every Sunday. We'd all feel convicted. Here's the beautiful thing. The more that we submit ourselves to Jesus, the more Jesus just pours out of us. Very excited about this prayer opportunity that you guys have coming up at the end of of June. Uh, uh, Please, mark your calendars. Oh, Dave, I already have something on that calendar. Change it. The airlines are still giving refunds. Be here for that. Churches that pray together, stay together. Father, thank you for this morning. We're reminded of lofty things, and it's hard. It's convicting. It's personal. And so, yeah, God, we we thank you that we are not saved by any action that we do, but we are saved by the actions that you have done. God, we thank you that we don't do any of these works on our own, but we do them by Christ in us, the Spirit of God in us. We thank you that we didn't come to these conclusions on our own, but you showed them to us. And yet, God, there's a responsibility on our part to be the priesthood of believers, to be the hands and feet of Jesus, and to confess your name, and it's hard. And so, God, we just pray that we would connect with you deeply, that what, what you're doing in us would just pour out. God, help us not to be overconfident in the past, but to be confident in you in the future. God, I pray that uh, we would have ears to hear what you are saying to our church and to our families and to our lives. Thank you that you're with us. In Jesus' name, amen.